Father, we thank you as we gather together again uh, on a Wednesday evening. We come with uh, a thirst uh, to know you and to know more about you and about your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the blessing of your Spirit tonight, that he would uh, throw light and bring the truth to, to bear upon not just our minds and thinking, uh, but also upon our hearts and affections. We, we love the church and we want to love her more and more. Now, grant your blessing, we pray, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, if you've got uh, an outline, uh, and if not, uh, you'll find uh, plenty on the table uh, to my left. Uh, tonight, this is number 64, uh, the church as mother and bride. Uh, l- let me draw your attention to the two quotations that I have here. I, I chose these quite deliberately. Uh, one is from Cyprian. And the other is from John Calvin, and actually John Calvin is referring um, in in the context in which Calvin's quotation comes in the Institutes, he is also referring to Cyprian. Uh, Cyprian, one of the uh, church fathers, uh, on the unity of the Catholic Church, uh, Catholic here meaning universal, not not Roman Catholic, Cyprian was before the inception of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, So he's just using the word in the sense that we use it in the Apostles' Creed, uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, the universal church. Um, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And then uh, notice uh, Calvin, and Calvin is picking up on Cyprian uh, in the Institutes. This is book four uh, of the Institutes. For what is... For what has been joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder. What is, for what has joined together, uh, it is not lawful to put asunder, quoting from Mark 10, uh, 9. So that for those to whom he is father, the church may also be mother. And this was not, so, not only, uh, was so not only under the law, uh, but also after Christ's coming, as, well, that's Paul, testifies... Sorry, it's been a busy day. Uh, as Paul testifies when he teaches that we are the children of the new and heavenly um, Jerusalem. Now, uh, just a little um, personal anecdote. Uh, I first read uh, this sentence of Calvin's, uh, w- which then drove me to uh, read uh, Cyprian on uh, the unity of the Catholic Church. Uh, it must have been. Uh, it must have been in 1970. Uh, seven. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down on 1977. It was, it was midway through my time at seminary. Uh, and one of the things that we were made to do at seminary, actually it was Dr. DeWitt who made us do this at seminary, uh, we had to read through um, the entirety of the institutes in one semester. That's, that's quite a tough uh, assignment. Um, and I, when I came to this section in the institutes, my, my copy of the institutes that I still use to this day is... The, is the copy that I read then, so my notes, and since then I, I, I did 
uh, doctoral work on, on Calvin, so the Institutes, in one form or another, uh, has been a part of my life and, and shaped uh, more of my thinking uh, than, than you may uh, know. But what's fascinating is the... the uh, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a kind of reader that writes notes in margins. To, to read the notes that I wrote in the margin when I first read, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And I have to say that the very first time I read that, I reacted fairly negatively toward it. I, I reacted as uh, someone who'd spent 20 years in Belfast as an Ulster Protestant, uh, and I, I read that statement um, as decisively way too Catholic for my tastes. Uh, and, and I wrote something in the margin, which one day I'll show you if you ask me. Uh, and um, I've, I've, since, I've since tempered my, my, my uh, response to it. I, I understand, I think, what, what Calvin is saying, what Cyprian is saying, uh, on, on the importance uh, of the church. And that's why we're spending um, an entire uh, semester in our, in our center point school of theology um, just, just looking at the church, ecclesiology. Uh, and tonight I want us to think through um, a, a biblical concept, and a New, New Testament concept borrowed as it is from the Old Testament of the church um, as the bride of Christ, the church as a bride. So let me uh, walk through um, some biblical passages here. Uh, that refer to the church as the bride of Christ. Uh, the first one in John, uh, John chapter 3, after the, the story with Nicodemus, uh, we're introduced to John the Baptist, uh, and the words here are the words of John the Baptist. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Uh, the church is the bride. The bridegroom here is Christ. And John, the friend of the bridegroom, the one who is, the one who is standing uh, beside uh, the bridegroom, uh, and, and his joy is now complete. Now, uh, I, I just want to ask uh, the question here, where is John, John the Baptist that is, where is John the Baptist getting this imagery of uh, bride and bridegroom? Uh, Jesus is coming towards him, John is baptizing in the river Jordan, uh, Jesus uh, says, suffer it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness and so on. Uh, John has a word that he that, that he should be the one to be baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. But, but then, in the course of this, of this uh, inaugural meeting of John the Baptist and Jesus, he refers to Jesus as, um, as the bridegroom, uh, a bride and a bridegroom. Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. Where, did, where does John get his baptism from? Um, and the answer, of course, is the Old Testament, and, and we're going we're to look at a passage in um, Isaiah 62 in a second. Uh, 
Uh, let's drop down to Jesus, Mark 2 and verse 19. And Jesus said to them, um, Can the wedding guests fast? Uh, the disciples have asked the question, you remember, uh, why do the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And, and, and so this question has been asked of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Well, anyone, anyone who's been to a wedding recently uh, will know this is not a period of fasting, but of feasting. Uh, there may be opportunities and, and appropriate settings in which to fast, but a wedding uh, the time of a wedding ceremony is, is not it. Uh, and, and during a wedding ceremony, then as now, there's food and feasting on the eve before the wedding and immediately after the wedding. And some of you may be professional uh, wedding feast attenders, regardless of who it is who's getting married. Um, I, I sometimes uh, look around uh, wedding receptions and wonder are all these people invited uh, because you could walk into any, any, any wedding feast on a Saturday evening here in town and who would know whether you're a guest or not and, and uh, I'm not suggesting that you do that of course um, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them here's, here's Jesus now using the same imagery uh, of a bridegroom uh, if, if there's a bridegroom, of course, there's also a bride. Uh, or in the parable of the ten virgins, uh, this is M Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we were looking at the Olivet Discourse on uh, Sunday morning in Mark 13. Uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, Mark, uh, Matthew 24, 25. Uh, the, the, the Matthew version is a much longer version and contains all those parables uh, in um, in Matthew uh, 25, and uh, the parable of the ten virgins, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Uh, and it's the imagery here that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in pursuing. Uh, the idea of Jesus as a bridegroom, and, and there's a bride, the bride which is his people, his covenant people, the church. Now, there's an Old Testament background here, as is always the case uh, in the New Testament, uh, that where, um, where uh, concepts are, are put forth in the New Testament, there's always an Old Testament background from which they're drawn. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to look briefly at um, Isaiah 62, Isaiah 62, um, similar reference in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 and, of course, in Hosea, uh, and, and Hosea uh, where the, the, the bride is, in fact, a, a, a harlot, a prostitute, uh, and we'll come back to that later. But let's look at um, Isaiah 62 and verses 4 and 5, and then if you turn the page, uh, the entire uh, the entire poem, and, and it is a poem uh, that runs from uh, 61, 10, all the way down, I think, to 62, 6, and I've, I've given you the entire thing, and I want to walk 
through it just a little bit, try and appreciate uh, some of the context of this poem, because it's a poem about a bride and a bridegroom. Uh, this, is the, this is the prophet Isaiah, of course, uh, speaking on the eve of the um, Assyrian um, invasion, uh, the decimation of Samaria, uh, of, uh, of the northern, uh, of the northern uh, capital of, uh, of, um, of Israel, and uh, uh, on the eve then of the exile that will be eventually forthcoming. Uh, after, after, long after Isaiah, uh, perhaps is 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 dead. But, but uh, here's here's the relevant uh, statement in verses four and five. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight, uh, Hephzibah. You, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, or, or the word Beulah. Uh, so you, you have a, a reference here to, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice um, over you. Now, this uh, poem, uh, which runs from 61.10 to 62.7, is uh, a poem about um, the Savior, the Anointed One, and his gathered people uh, and the church, if you like. And it's a, it's a, it's a response and is related to the four um, servant songs. Uh, Dr. Davis was taking us through uh, the four um, Isaiahic servant songs uh, last, last year. Uh, and this one, uh, this one alludes perhaps in particular to that third servant song, uh, that refers to the Lord's um, an anointed, his willingness uh, to perform uh, the task and the ministry that is, uh, that is given to him. Let's look at the entire poem just briefly, uh, 61.10. I will, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. The I, the, the singular person here, is the Lord's anointed. Uh, this, is, this is the servant uh, of whom four songs have already been given uh, from chapter 42 of Isaiah through to chapters uh, 52, 53, the fourth servant song. Those, those, those four songs, now I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. This is, this is the servant uh, who is rejoicing in the Lord. For my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, meaning that he is, he is commissioned and, and fitted um, to be the servant, to be the savior, and 
is wearing the clothes, the, the, the uniform that identifies him as such. Right? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He is, he is the coming Savior. He is the coming servant of the Lord. And he's clothed and fitted like, like wearing a uniform. And the uniform are the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, of course, in the New Testament, that becomes deeply significant. The robe of his righteousness is what he, is what he imputes to us. We, we, we wear, by faith in him, the garment of the robe of his righteousness um, by faith. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. Well, here he is, the obedient servant, obeying, obeying perfectly the commission that is given to him, the, the law keeper, the covenant keeper, wearing the, the uniform of the servant, wearing the uniform of the Savior, the robe of righteousness. As, here's the metaphor, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now let's, let's pause. Let's think about that just for a second. Look, look at it carefully. The, he is rejoicing in God. He's experiencing joy for two reasons. Number one, in verse 10, th that the Lord has filled his anointed one and fitted his anointed one for the anointed task. He is he is rejoicing because he has been fitted for this, he has been fitted for this task. And secondly, in verse 11, because the work for which he has been fitted is destined to succeed, like, like sowing seed in the ground and it sprouts up. As the, as the process of germination, that something that this servant will do as the servant of the Lord will bring forth fruit. So the servant is sowing seed in the ground which will bring forth fruit to um, the praise um, of God. Now in verse 1 of Chapter 62, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. That righteousness, which is the servant's righteousness, credited to the account of the bride, until her righteousness goes, he's not going to stop until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. 
And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her. And your land, Beulah. Remember Pilgrim's Progress, Beulah land? From which you could see the celestial city. Like a, like a little wayside stop in which, in, in which there is, a, there is a, a, a video clip showing of, of your final destination. And it's called Beulah. Uh, one of the elders in the church that I first served in Belfast, um, who, as it happens, I, I made contact with yesterday again, but I was reminded yesterday um, that his home, his house, was called Beulah. Now, if you go to Scotland, and, and his wife was Scottish, free church, uh, a quintessential free church, Scottish uh, lass, and uh, if, you, if you travel in, in conservative uh, Presbyterian circles in the north of Scotland, all, almost every other home is going to be called Beulah because it's a little, it's a little foretaste of heaven. Now, now, do you see what Isaiah is saying about his people, his covenant people, for whom his anointed one is, is wearing the robe of righteousness and being, and being fitted for the task of salvation, it is that his people, his covenant people, would have a little foretaste of heaven. You know, that's what church is. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like that, and sometimes it doesn't behave like that. But the church, when it's being church, is a little foretaste of heaven. It's, it's a little Beulah stop from which you can see and hear. Sometimes on Sunday morning, if you listen, if you listen, you can hear heaven. You can hear the angels sing. Sometimes if you open your eyes, you can see them. I'm not being weird. I'm using metaphorical language now. I'm not suggesting that you see visions and hear, and hear sounds. I'm, but I'm saying that with the eye of faith, with the ears of faith, you're, 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 just, you're just one stop away from heaven. You can see it. If you, look, if you look across the valley, you can see it. It's right there. God comes down among his people, and it's a Beulah. It's um, married. Because the bridegroom is married to the bride. In covenant. Because that's what marriage means. Till death is due part for us. But for, for this bridegroom it is forever. Because there is no death that parts us. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, verse 4, middle of verse 4. For the Lord delights in you. As a, as a bridegroom delights in his bride... And you're all looking now for Rosemary, and Rosemary is sick. You know, she went to Scotland. 
you, you poke that TV screen in front of you and there's more germs on that TV screen than, than anywhere else in the entire globe, right? And, and, and so she, she's coughing and sneezing. But, but as, as the Lord delights in you, your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So, so the anointed one, the, the servant, but particularly the servant of the third servant song upon whom the Spirit descends, the anointed one commits to the task of creating a people who would publicly display their saved status, their, 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 their righteous status, so that Zion, the church, might become the praise of the earth. Well, that's the vision. You know, it's a poem. It's, it's a vision of a bridegroom and a bride. Now, if you ask, where did John, John the Baptist, get his metaphor of bride and bridegroom from, I, I would suggest to you he got it from here. Um, when Jesus speaks of, of the, using metaphors of bride and bridegroom, I, 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 am, I am more convinced than ever that Jesus spent a great deal of his time in his youth and teenage years and in his 20s and as he approached that, that moment when he's baptized by John in the River Jordan, he, he, is, he is studying and contemplating and mulling over the servant songs of Isaiah. So, so much of his language with regard to his work, the purpose why he's here, the task that has been given to him is filled with the language of these servant songs. He is the bridegroom who has come for his bride. Uh, so, uh, sorry, I didn't put page numbers. I told you it was a busy day today. I didn't put page numbers in. But in the page uh, after that, um, I, I, I say there are four sections in this poem. And uh, this is, uh, this is um, Alec Motier's um, division of this poem. Uh, it, it's, it's typical uh, Hebrew uh, in that... Uh, in that there's, a, there's a, a stylistic thing going on here. The joy in the work of salvation is paralleled by joy in transformed Zion. And then the single intercessor is paralleled by interceding company. So there's, this is a poem and it has structure. But, but at the heart of this poem is the servant. 
who is the bridegroom who is coming for his bride, whom God intends to make um, the praise uh, of all the earth. And he's talking about you and me. He's talking about the church. Um, let's, let's skip down to Paul. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. There's that same image again. Or, or the more familiar passage uh, in Ephesians 5. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Uh, These are very familiar uh, words, of course, from Ephesians 5 in the context of marriage when Paul, uh, in Ephesians, as as we will be hearing uh, no doubt this weekend, and Paul addresses uh, various uh, contexts of life, uh, parents and children, uh, servants and, and, and masters, husbands and wives, uh, in the family, in, in the home, uh, in, in the church, in society, uh, and using this metaphor of the relationship between a husband and a wife and Christ and his church. Now, there's a little interesting aside here, and, and, and really that's what it is here. I, I have a quotation there from um, Greg Beale. Uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, statement that he makes. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is Genesis 2.24. And... Uh, Greg Beale says that Ephesians 5.32 says that Genesis 2.24 is not primarily about the relationship of husbands to their wives, but rather about the relationship of Christ to the church. And that this relationship is a mystery that is great. Paul is saying that what appeared to be a pattern describing only the human institution of marriage now describes in view of Christ's coming and the formation of his church much more. The pattern of a man leaving his family, becoming one with his wife, found in Genesis 2.24, contains within it a mirror image of a greater marriage, the Messiah leaving his heavenly home and father and becoming united with the church. Well, you might, and I think I quibble with the way he goes about saying that, but but there's 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 a relationship here between between marriage as indicated in the opening chapters of the Bible and the relationship of Christ and the church. Now, we'll come to the implications of it in a second. Uh, And then John, uh, Revelation, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you 
the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The same image, interesting, interesting that you've got that image reflected in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and, and, and mother and, and cleave unto his wife. And now you've got in the closing chapters of the Bible this same image of the lamb and his bride, the bridegroom and his bride. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Well, some conclusions here, uh, uh, briefly, and, and, uh, and, and four, four ideas here. Uh, number one, uh, love the church as you would a bride. Uh, we cannot... Uh, We cannot adopt a view uh, with regard to the church that it's, um, it's, it's optional, um, that it's hip to, to, to talk about community uh, without viewing that community in terms of the church and the biblical church, uh, the church with, with structure, the church with office bearers, the church with elders and deacons, the church with its gifts, the church with its sacraments, the church with its, with its gathered worship, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. Right? The New Testament doesn't know of a concept of a Christian who is independent of the body. I remember uh, talking to somebody one time, uh, we were going from door to door in, in, in the neighborhood in which the, street, the church was in, and just randomly knocking on doors in the evenings and uh, trying to engage folk in conversation. And I remember being invited into this uh, home, and, uh, and this man, uh, he knew his Bible ex- extraordinarily well, thought of himself as a Christian, but he'd never been in church. I had no time for the church. I don't believe in the church. I don't believe in the institutional church. Um, he, 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 was just, he was just alone. And the Bible doesn't, doesn't know of such a thing. Because you're part of a body, and you, and you love the church as you do your bride, as you do your wife. This is a concept that is, is appealing here to men, of course. Love the church. Uh, secondly, the betrothal. Uh, when was this betrothal? In the language of John 17, uh, in eternity... You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is Jesus in the so-called high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he, and he, he keeps repeating this idea. This is on the eve of his, of his crucifixion. This is on the eve of him laying down his life on behalf of his bride. This is, this is Jesus contemplating what it means to be the servant of the Lord. And he thinks now back into eternity 
of the donation of the father to the servant of those whom you have given him. I've manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. There is this donation on the part of the father to the son. Uh, Notice, uh, uh, thirdly, holiness. The holiness of the church, the holiness of the bride. You know, why does a bride wear white? Well, to reflect holiness. Uh, To reflect, um, well, it used to reflect virginity. Uh, given, given, uh, Given now wholly to the bridegroom in covenant. The holiness of the church that he might, back in Ephesians 5 from the context of, of, of marriage and instructions that Paul gives about marriage, he says that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This marriage... which is to come. The marriage that is spoken of in Revelation, the, 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 the marriage supper of the bride and the bridegroom. What is this pilgrim existence in which we find ourselves, in which God has uh, called us out to be his, his pilgrim people? One in which we are conformed more and more, not just individually, but corporately as a body, to reflect the image of his son, to reflect the image of the bridegroom, that he might sanctify her, that he might set her apart, having cleansed her with the washing of water and the word, to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You know, that's how important holiness is in the life of the church. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, that, that when you sin, you, you, the, the body, you make the body sin. You can't live like this and not, and not affect the entire body, what you do, what you say affects the entire body. So it is the intention of God to present to his son, the bridegroom, a church that is pure and cleansed and, and holy. That's why we strive after holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, the uh, book of Hebrews says. Well, uh, you know, in contrast to that, what kind, of, what kind of people are we that God makes into this bride? Well, nowhere is that depicted more graphically than, than in Hosea and in the, the narrative of uh, Gomer and uh, of, the, of the, um, the harlot. 
And he takes people like us, sinners, broken, with all our faults and failures and sins and transgressions and shortcomings. And he makes us into this beautiful bride. For the marriage of which the book of Revelation speaks, the, 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 future, the future consummation of this marriage, and that extraordinary picture uh, in Revelation of, the, of the, the marriage supper of the bridegroom and the bride. You know, Jesus says, as we've been thinking in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, uh, he, 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 gives, he gives the vision, doesn't he? I will build my church. Ecclesia. Called out ones. The ones who are called out. Ecclesia. From a, a word to call and a, a word out of out of the world, into fellowship with each other, and into fellowship and communion with Christ. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is God doing? What's he doing in this church? Well, preparing us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, A week tomorrow we will have the Lord's Supper again. You know, there's an argument, and we'll talk about it, whether you should have the Lord's Supper every week and so on. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come to it. But here in, in this church, the wisdom of the elders here is that we have the Lord's Supper 12 times a year. And one of the advantages, and, and I know you, you'll come back to me, and, and that's fine, but one of the advantages of, of having it not as frequently... is anticipation. And when we do have the Lord's Supper, it's, it's all the more special. Because every time we have the Supper, you know, as I, as I sometimes say, you know, the Lord's Supper is like, well, it, it's not a meal. You know, a little tiny, t- tiny piece of bread, actually shortcake, with lots of butter and sugar and a, and a little thimble full of, of wine. I mean, if that's, if that's, if that's all they're going to offer you at the, at, the, at the wedding for the feast, you're going to go home and say, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't very good. That was poor. I, I've, had, I've had better meals than that because it's an hors d'oeuvre. It's a, forte, it's a, it's a little taster of what is to come. The full and final consummation of the bride and his bridegroom of Jesus and the church in the new heavens and in the new earth. Where the righteousness of the bride will be seen by all the earth, fulfilling Isaiah's little poem in chapter 61 and 62. Well, let's think together about the church as a bride. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. 
Thank you that there's a purpose here that has been from eternity and one that is now being fulfilled before our very eyes as we see the Lord Jesus marching through the corridors of space and time, calling the people that you have given to him, to himself, gathering together his bride. Lord, we, we thank you that we are part and parcel of that communion, that community, which is his bride. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, give us a love, a, a love that is consonant with, with being the bride of Christ. So bless us, we pray, and as we uh, segue into a time of prayer together shortly, we ask for your presence and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.